This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading medical research schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine prepared by Icon Mount Sinai in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at science.org and search for Frontiers of Medical Research Artificial Intelligence. On May 1st and May 2nd, ICON, Mount Sinai, and the New York Academy of Sciences will be convening a major symposium in New York City on the new wave of AI in healthcare. For more information and to register, please visit events.nyas.org slash AI health. That's events.nyas.org slash AI health. The ICON School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the NOMIS and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The NOMIS and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash NOMIS, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for September 12th, 2014. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, we talk about the role of engineering in taking on global health. And David Grimm is here with a roundup of daily news stories. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, advancing science, engineering, and innovation throughout the world for the benefit of all people. AAAS, the Science Society, at www.aaas.org. In this week's special issue on global health, we hear from many experts, all tackling a world-sized problem from very different angles, such as vaccine development, how to provide funding and then track the effects of that funding, combating infectious diseases on the ground, and engineering solutions and new technologies that fit into these complex situations. I spoke with Rebecca Richards-Cordham about when engineering solutions go wrong and how to implement the right ideas in the right place. In our perspective, we ask why it's so difficult to translate simple technologies that have improved public health in wealthy countries into solutions that can improve lives everywhere around the world. We review what I think are some exciting success stories as well as some spectacular failures. Both show that the gap in access to innovation can be closed but only if the engineering and the international aid communities work together to try and design new solutions that recognize both the constraints that are dictated by scarcity as well as the need for scalability. Well, this article is part of a global health special issue that we're doing here in science. Can you talk about this connection between engineering, design, and global health? Sure. I think these issues are really so interconnected As an example, engineers have known how to make drinking water safe and how to build toilets in developing countries for more than 100 years. Yet still, there are more than 760 million people that don't have access to safe drinking water, and 2.5 billion people lack access to basic sanitation facilities. 
we know that access to these technologies can mean the difference between life and death. Diarrheal disease, 90% of which is related to inadequate access to clean water and sanitation, kills more children under five than AIDS, malaria, and measles combined. How is this a technology problem? Well, I think in many cases, the technologies that were designed for high-resource settings to address these needs, they simply can't be adapted to work in low-resource settings because they're too expensive or because they rely on an infrastructure that doesn't exist. Yeah, I think a great example of this is if you look at PEPFAR, so the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, they invested over a billion dollars between 2005 and 2011 to strengthen clinical laboratories to improve HIV-AIDS care, mostly in sub-Saharan Africa. And what they found is that the maintenance and the repair of this lab equipment that was designed for high-resource settings is a huge challenge. So you find things like intermittent power and line voltage spikes damages equipment to the point where it's unusable. And labs are unable to get the consumable reagents and the spare parts that they need to keep this equipment working because the supply chain is fragile and there's very limited technical support to maintain and repair this equipment. And so just taking equipment that was designed for a high-resource setting and plopping it into a low-resource setting doesn't solve the problem. And so this is where you bring in the concept of frugal design. How does that work? What kind of parameters do people working under that rubric use? So it's really a very simple idea, and it's just the idea that you start the design process with a very explicit recognition that both material and human infrastructure are limited. You then take the approach to design solutions that meet the constraints that are imposed by the severe economic and infrastructure limitations. It's a process that begins with constraints that are dictated by scarcity. But it doesn't stop there because I think more importantly, it also focuses on how do you develop new designs that can be successfully implemented, scaled, and sustained after they're introduced. You you design for the space that the product will be used in as opposed to where perhaps people designing it live. Mm-hmm, exactly. And you design it to meet the user needs in that setting, both from the perspective of using it initially, but then being able to maintain that over time. Um, success you mention in your paper is Uniject. What problems was it designed to solve and what made it a success? Well, I think it's, it's a, both an important issue and a really great example of success. So, you know, it's been estimated that more than 30% of injections in low-resource settings are unsafe because people reuse syringes due to supply chain limitations. And Uniject is a new injection technology that can't be reused. It's a very simple idea. It's this blister pack that's pre-filled with the proper dose of vaccine or medicine, and it's connected to a needle via a one-way valve. And the one-way valve prevents the device from being refilled and reused. And I think the reason that it is so successful is because it simplifies not only the logistics of vaccine delivery, but it reduces vaccine wastage, and users prefer it because it's easier for them to do their job. But most importantly, it was brought to scale. So the WHO, USAID, the NGL PASS, 
and the company Becton Dickinson all work together to make the technology commercially available at affordable prices. And so what we've seen is that millions of doses of hepatitis B and tetanus vaccine have been delivered using Uniject. And there are really exciting efforts underway to expand access to injectable contraceptives using Uniject technology in low-resource settings. And now, even in high-resource settings, Uniject is being pursued to be used to treat severe hypoglycemia in settings where a first responder might want a simple technology or for parents of children with diabetes, for example. Another successful intervention that you mentioned in your article is uh, doesn't actually involve technology at all. This is about, you know, adding signage to buses to prevent accidents. How did that work? What were the goals and, and how successful was that? Well, the goal there was to address this growing problem of road traffic safety, which is a huge global problem. So over a million people die every year in road traffic accidents, and 90% of them live in low- and middle-income countries. It's been estimated that by 2030, this will actually be the third leading cause of global mortality. And one approach would be just to build new roads and improve the safety of road systems, but that's very expensive whereas modifying driver behavior is an inexpensive alternative. So in this really creative experiment, what was done was signs were posted in half of a fleet of minibuses in Kenya, and the signs simply encouraged passengers to speak out together when they felt that the driver was driving in an unsafe manner. And they had actually a control group in this study, and when they compared the outcomes and buses with the signage to the control group, what they found was that passengers riding in vans with signs filed only about a third as many insurance claims, and the injury and the fatality claims dropped by nearly 50%. So I think it's a great example of how the frugal design process can lead to an appropriate solution that can be easily scaled. I noticed that it's an experiment. Is that something that's also part of the frugal design principles? It is, actually. So testing to show that you have efficacy both at the community level and the national level to support that scale-up is a really important part of that process. Can you give us an example of something that didn't work out so well, one of the failures that you wrote about? So I think a good example of failure would be the play pumps which was an attempt to help improve access to clean water in communities. And the idea was that you could use children's play, you could harness the energy of children's play, turning a merry-go-round around to pump water up into a tank that would be stored and then released when people came to the tap to fill their water containers. This is a great example where there was a lot of publicity around this idea and donors were sort of quick to call for efforts to scale up the play pump. But what people later found was that when you talk to users and communities, they actually prefer the traditional AfroDev hand pumps, which are much less expensive because you don't have to pump the water up into this tank. Mm-hmm. It takes a lot of energy to do that. And so it actually took much more energy to be able to fill a bucket of water. And it was estimated that it would take 27 hours a day of playtime <laughs> to be able to meet a community's need for water in a 24-hour period. So I think it's a, a good example of when users were not as involved in the frugal design process as they need to be. Well, 
frugal design and ensuring scalability seem like very sensible ideas. What's being done or should be done to make this common practice for people working in engineering and financing these types of projects? Well, I think one of the most important things to do is to engage more students in the process of frugal design. And I think particularly in low-resource settings, it is essential to reform curriculum to make frugal design a component of engineering education because these are the settings where a lack of engineering capacity and infrastructure has the biggest limit on economic development. In the early 2000s, actually the number of engineers that was emigrating annually from South Africa was equal roughly to the number of engineers graduating. And so building this capacity in a way that's locally appropriate is critical. And you know, I think if we look at the efforts that the U.S. government has invested, for example, the NIH invested $130 million in medical education partnerships to try and develop human capacity in the region, retain faculty and graduates, and help the region develop relevant research programs. I think absolutely the same kind of investment and development is needed in the engineering space. And what role do you play in this puzzle of putting together technology, the people that it's designed to serve, and promoting it around the world? I am a professor of bioengineering at Rice University, and I co-direct an undergraduate educational program called Beyond Traditional Borders, where we engage students as early as the freshman year in actually designing solutions to challenges that come from clinicians who are providing care in low-resource settings. And when students have designs that look promising, then we provide opportunities for them to travel back actually to the setting where the challenge came from and to get feedback on their solution and actually in some cases to implement it in that solution. And so we've had students that have had the opportunity now to actually see their technologies go into clinical trials, into national scale-up in a couple of cases, and, and even commercialization. Rebecca, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you. Rebecca Richards-Cordham writes about frugal engineering in this week's special issue on global health. You can read her article and more at www.sciencemag.org slash special slash global health. Now we have David Grimm, the editor for our daily news site. He's here this week to talk about some recent online stories. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up, we have a story on powerful fish spit. Archer fish hunt by spitting streams of water at insects above the water, and then they grab their suddenly submerged targets when they fall in. So Dave, my understanding is that researchers had to train these fish for a year in the laboratory to understand and study them. What exactly were they trying to do with this training? Well, these fish have this pretty remarkable ability. You can actually see a slow-motion video of a fish spitting an insect out of the air on the site. But we already know a few things that are remarkable about this ability. First of all, you know, trying to spit at something when you're under the water and they're above the water, you have to correct for a lot of visual distortions. There's got to be a lot of power in that spit. And the researchers in this study really wanted to figure out how the fish are so accurate. I mean, they're spitting often at fairly large distances, and they've got to keep that stream very constant because if it breaks up in midair, it's not going to have the power to knock an insect off a branch or what have you. Right. They're spitting like two meters. 
Yes, as far as two meters away. And the fish is only 25 centimeters long. So they were training them to spit so then they could analyze what they, exactly they were doing when they spit? They spent a year training these fish. <laughs> they gathered some fish from Thailand, some of these uh, archer fish, and they spent a year training them not to spit because they already knew how to spit, but training them to hit specific targets that were about 20 to 60 centimeters in height from precise locations. And while they were doing that, the researchers were taking high-speed videos of the fish to really figure out how they achieve such accurate aim. And when they reviewed the tapes, what did they find out about the fish's aim? Well, the fish have a lot of adaptations to both make this stream more powerful, but also to keep it very accurate. It's sort of like a sharpshooter. And actually, they say the mechanism isn't that dissimilar from the mechanism of the mammalian penis <laughs> in the fact that it's able to take the stream and keep it very focused and concentrated over large distances. So there's a lot of other stuff going on here, too. We're talking about the shape of the mouth and also how far open they hold their mouth when they're shooting for these bugs. But now that we know this, how can this new understanding be applied beyond hunting bugs? Well, one of the interesting things is that this is such a complicated ability that these fish have that some researchers actually compare it to tool use. It's effectively the same as humans throwing spears at prey. These fish have learned how to turn water into a weapon. And why that's interesting is because it's thought that our ability to use tools really helped increase our brain size, led to a lot more complex cognition, which really was obviously very important for the evolution of our species. And the question is, if this is indeed tool use by these archer fish, are they undergoing a similar cognitive revolution? Next up, we have a story on the relationship between art and life. Ancient Egyptian art is rich with depictions of the local animals of the time, zebra, giraffes, even ostriches, as you may have noticed, not all of these animals that are in the art are still around. Now researchers are using this discrepancy to take a closer look at extinctions. Dave, what time period is this work focused on? We're talking about going back up to 6,000 years. This is a time well before the pyramids. We're talking about etchings on prehistoric rock. Later on, we do see the drawings, the paintings on the insides of tombs, which a lot of people are familiar with, and we actually have a picture of that on the site. Even uh, carvings, decorative carvings on things like knife handles. All of these tend to contain depictions of animals, and what the researchers really want to see is how do these animals change over time, not just the type of animals that are represented, but even the number of animals. And when they look back at animal loss as represented in these artifacts, what kinds of patterns were they able to see? Well, one of the big things that they saw was when you had these dramatic shifts in climate and land use, you also saw these dramatic shifts in the number of predators relative to the number of prey, which you would kind of expect when you have things like sudden dryings of the Nile Valley or you have these big population booms. That's going to have an impact on the animals. But the researchers were especially interested in how, in these predator-prey relationships, how stable are these ecosystems? And if you start to lose predators or if you start to lose prey species, what impact does that have on the entire ecosystem? And they found that the most ancient and the most species-rich ecosystems were the most resilient, but that over time, these networks become less and less stable as they start to lose members. You have less prey available for predators, or you have fewer predators to control the prey, and things kind of degrade over time, where we have this situation now where there's only eight large mammal species remaining in Egypt, up from a speculated about 37 in ancient times. That's all based on modeling and also the artwork. 
This is my nitpicky question. Isn't it possible some of the art from back then was fanciful? The animals were there, but a long time before, never there, but actually painted for artistic reasons. Right, and that's what some experts say, is that just because an animal appears in Egyptian art doesn't necessarily mean that animal was actually there. It could have been symbolic. It could have been historical. The artist is just trying to remember an animal that perhaps used to exist and and depicting it. So we have to be a little bit careful about making this one-to-one comparison between seeing animals in art and whether they are actually there in real life. Lastly, we have a story on the reliability of clinical trials. Clinical trials are the last step before a drug or treatment reaches patients. These types of experiments are required to prove that a drug, for example, is effective and does not have extreme side effects. But a recent look at reanalysis studies suggests clinical trials are not always accurately reported. Okay, Dave, what's a reanalysis study? Well, a reanalysis study is sort of what it sounds like. It's a new group of researchers, ideally, going back and looking at an older study and taking a look at the raw data in that study and maybe applying some more recent or more accurate statistical techniques to analyze that data and try to see if they come to the same conclusions that the original authors did. And in this study of studies of studies, <laughs> the researchers look through Medline, which is a huge database of medical and biological research for these types of studies. What kinds of results did they see when they looked at the reanalysis? Well, they're looking at clinical trials. These are the type of trials and these are the type of studies that tend to lead to recommendations, not just about the types of drugs that should be used or shouldn't be used or the dosages, but even things like surgeries and other therapies. They found about 3,000 trials, and they found that 37 of these had been reanalyzed by other groups. And when you say 37 have been reanalyzed, it means those are the published reports of reanalysis. That's right. And so there's a catch here. There are actually problems that the reanalysis studies found with the original analysis. What kind of errors were they finding? Well, for example, there was a study that was done on methotrexate, which has been used to treat something called systemic sclerosis, which is an autoimmune disease. Now, the original study in 2001 found that the drug was really not more any more effective than the placebo, so the authors didn't recommend using it for this particular condition. Condition. However, researchers reanalyzed the paper eight years later. They used a more accurate type of analysis, statistical analysis, and this time they found that the drug was actually more effective than placebo, so much more so that they actually recommended this drug being used for these sclerosis patients. That's a positive result, right? It actually found, oh, this was an effective treatment. There's also some things that are going in the opposite direction. Well, right. For example, a therapy called sclerotherapy, in which a drug is injected to treat dilated veins in the esophagus. And the original study, which was conducted in 1984, actually found that it was effective. But a 2001 study found that it was not effective, that the treatment did not reduce mortality. So the researchers found examples of both cases. And as a whole, they found that 13 of these 37 reanalysis studies actually came to conclusions different from those of what the original team concluded. These 37 studies that they looked at could be somewhat of a biased sample, though, because basically to get published, you have to have something interesting to say. It's kind of a bias in the literature in general. So if they didn't contradict the original findings, they might not actually get published. Is there any way to know how common this is in general with data from clinical trials? Well, the problem is a lot of the data from clinical trials, especially if it's conducted or sponsored by pharmaceutical companies, tends to not make it into the scientific literature. So there's just reams and reams of data out there that are not being analyzed, that are not being published. And it's really hard to tell how many of these studies are actually being accurately reported without having access to that original data. 
a lot of problems are coming up because there's secrecy surrounding raw clinical data. Is there anything being done to address this problem? Yeah, there's been a lot of outcry to release more clinical data. There's something called the All Trials Campaign, which is a global effort to push for open clinical research with thousands of researchers and organizations pledging to share all of their clinical data. It seems like people realize this is a problem that needs to be addressed. Okay, so what else is on the site this week, Dave? Well, Sarah, we've got a story about how your microbiome, these are all the bacteria that live on you and in you, may influence the efficacy of certain vaccines. Also a story about researchers tracking morality by our smartphone use. For Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got a story on the impact that Scottish independence, if it happens, will have on science. Also, two new studies have come out that have both good news and bad news for the fate of the U.S.'s bird populations. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, sir. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. He'll be out next week, but back the following. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news and the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, please write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and many other places, or listen on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.